You're listening to Trucking Questions from the Audio Road with Kevin Rutherford. This is the show that puts the money where it belongs, back in your pocket. You can ask questions about trucks, money, fuel mileage, maintenance, tires, tax, technology, or anything else about the business of trucking. Here we go. Let's head on down the audio road. Welcome to my world. I'm your host, Kevin Rutherford. The website is letstruck.com. The show is all about the business of trucking, and today is the Power Hour. I've got Ethan and Bruce with me from Pittsburgh Power, and we'll take your calls and answer your questions about everything maintenance, engines, modifications, upgrades, troubleshooting, power, you name it. We'll talk about it. All you have to do is pick up the phone and call us. We're going to get to those calls in a little bit. I'm going to bring Ethan and Bruce on. Hey, guys, welcome back. Hello, Kevin. Thank you for having us. Hi, Kevin. Hey there. Did somebody give John the day off? John grabbed a day off on us. Can you believe that? I I don't remember seeing that request. I don't think I approved that. (laughs) (laughs) You tell him that next week. That's enough of that. That's 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 right. Race car stuff pulling him away from the trucking industry. These people with these race cars, uh, once they're finding out that he's uh, finding a home in trucking, they're starting to get antsy and they want him back in racing. So we got to keep that from happening. Oh, yeah. We're going to keep him here. We have him now. We're keeping him. There's some testing going on down by Savannah, Georgia, and they pay him an ungodly amount of money to come down and, and do the final setups. Interesting. He's just too, All right. well, he's just too he, he's just too smart, saying everybody wants him. I know. I know. He's very much in demand, but you've got him now and we've got him here, so we're happy about that. Okay. Anything going on this week? Yes, uh, we had a 6NZ and a 379 Pete come in on a hook yesterday. This first time we've seen this truck, it is absolutely bone stock. It had lost the the compressor wheel on the turbo. Apparently, he continued to drive it. He completely filled the charge air cooler with oil, and we have three-eighths of an inch of oil in the intake manifold. Now, the, the negative part of doing that, if it's just to even get it off the road or to the next exit, if that much oil is coming out, once that oil gets in on top of those pistons and it starts to ignite, It's a runaway train. You cannot stop it. The only way you can stop an engine that way is you have to pull the elbow off going into the turbo and shut off the fresh air going in. Well, these engines will rev to about 4,000 RPM, and uh, your mind's going 1,000 miles an hour at that time. What do you do? So... Once you hear the explosion, the best thing is just to pull it over, drift it to the side of the road, and get it shut off. Years ago, we had a guy that happened to on his big cam with a Holset turbo, and he happened to be in low gear, and he was near a concrete block building. So he thought he'd just pull it up to the front of the building and ease out the clutch, and the building would hold back the truck. What do you think <laughs> happened? <laughs> the at, truck at, went through one wall, through the through the building, and out the other side because it's like a bulldozer when it's making 4,000 RPM and it's making well over 1,000 horsepower and it's in low gear. You can't stop it. 
Yeah, once that engine takes off like that and it starts burning that oil, that oil burns so hot that, yeah, it's, uh, I haven't heard of it in a while, but I have seen the results of that and it's pretty horrendous. Right. We haven't seen it lately, but I've never seen a charge air cooler this full. It's going to be a lot of magazine article. Yeah, tremendous amount. So the other negative thing is, was there any rod and main bearing damage done? How low is the oil in the oil pan? We've got to check that yet. Right now we're replacing the turbo and the charge air cooler and sucking the oil out of the intake manifold. That was going to be my next question because you've got an engine running at an extremely high RPM producing tremendous amounts of heat, and now it's also low on oil. Yeah. They, uh, they'll go until the engine locks up by spun rod and main bearings. So that's yeah. a catastrophe. You never want to have that happen to you. That's so why we just keep so, saying, so people know when that keep, turbo left loose like this, it's going to make a lot of noise. It makes noise. And uh, it did not break the compressor housing, just broke the compressor wheel. So naturally, your boost goes to zero. Another reason why you should have a good boost gauge, and it should be easy to see. Your boost goes to zero. Your exhaust gas temperature takes off. The truck loses power and almost comes to a stop, but you've got to shut them off. And then evaluate the situation. Pull the elbow off going uh, coming out of the turbo, going to the charge air cooler, or pull the rubber elbow off bringing the fresh air into the turbo and seeing just how bad it is before you try to limp it to the next exit. You know, when I had the, uh, when I had the wrist pin let loose on that series 60, uh, the noise that it made, I thought I lost the turbo and the engine was still running. And that really made me think that it was a turbo, but then just the way it was acting, um, I started to really think that I had put something through the block and that turned out to be what it was, but it was still running. I mean, it, you know, I actually was able to pull it into a parking lot, but when it let loose, I thought it was a turbo. I agree. I agree. So the best thing to do is to stop and evaluate it and go from there. Yeah, well, it was pretty easy to evaluate once I get out and looked at the side of the block and I could see inside the engine. It was pretty clear what had happened. That's another reason why I keep saying you've got to put 10 cents a mile aside. Loaded miles, empty miles, you have to have that maintenance fund. And we, we know on the new engines it's greater than 10 cents, but at least if you put 10 cents a mile aside, in maintenance, you're always covered when every one of these catastrophes happen. You know, and, and those kind of things, we can't see them coming. Like that engine, that Series 60, I would have swore it had enough, it had 800,000 miles on it. I would have swore it had at least a half a million more. It was solid. It wasn't burning any oil. My oil samples were completely clean. It was tuned well. It was running great. The fuel economy was excellent. There's no way we can predict metal fatigue. And that's all it was. It was just metal fatigue. The wrist pin let loose. I wasn't under a load. I was bobtailing. It's just one of those things. You'll never see it coming. That's why what you just said, having that money set aside is so important. 
The maintenance fund is key to existing in the trucking industry. You know, the the thing people will tell me, because I've been recommending that same thing forever, Bruce. They'll tell me, well, you know what? I just can't afford it. I All my money's gone after every week. And my answer to that is, well, then you're doing something wrong. You've got to change something in the business because you either put that money aside and have it when something goes wrong or you don't and something's still going to go wrong. And you see guys literally go out of business because of a breakdown, sometimes not even a major breakdown. Honestly, if you own a truck, I don't consider anything under 10,000 a major breakdown. Those are you just have to expect, you know, 10,000 and under is just normal stuff. It's going to happen. And if it if it happens to be more than that, then you really need to be prepared for that. But I've seen guys that end up losing a truck over five or six thousand dollar repairs. And the other thing is to not only the maintenance fund have a couple credit cards that you don't necessarily need to use or use. I know some people can't control themselves with a credit card, but you have to. And if if you can't write down everything that you put on the card and make sure that you can pay it at the end of each month, but have a high limit in case something like this happens. You know, a good idea, Bruce, this is kind of goofy, but I've actually helped people with this and it works. Get, Get that credit card with a high limit take a big metal coffee can, make sure it's metal, put your credit card in there, fill it with water, put a lid on it, throw it in the freezer. The physical card itself. (laughs) Because you can't can't get to it to spend money. And if it's metal, you can't put it in the microwave. It's going to take a while to thaw it out. And by the time you thaw it out and get to the card, Maybe you've stopped that impulse from using it, and it'll be there in an emergency. You have Ethan laughing here. <laughs> I've never thought of that before, Kevin. <laughs> it, I know it sounds kind of goofy, but for some people, it actually works. If they have the card and they carry it around in their wallet, they'll use it. The card, because Bruce, you're right. It's a great backup. You know, a home equity line of credit, uh, a HELOC can do the same thing. So you, you get the line of credit, it's sitting there, you ignore it. When you need it, one phone call, one check, and you have the money you need. Those are things you've got to do if you want to survive in business. I'm going to uh, get to a break. We're going to come back and we're going to get to your calls and questions right after this. I'm Kevin Rutherford. This is the Power Hour. We'll be right back.
Welcome back. I'm Kevin Rutherford. This is the Power Hour. I've got Ethan and Bruce with me from Pittsburgh Power. And uh, what do you say we get to some phone calls? Let's do it. All right. Let's go to New York. Chad, welcome to the program. Hello? Yep, it's your turn. Go ahead. Hey, Kevin, it's Chad. How are you doing, buddy? Hey there. Hey, Bruce, Ethan? Yes. Yeah, yeah how are we doing today? Uh, my first thing, Bruce, I was, uh, I had the pleasure of finally coming down. I just want to make a quick comment, and I got a question for Ethan. I wanted to just let you know, Bruce, I didn't get a chance to meet you, but um, very impressed with everything there, uh, right from the phone calls to Pete, Ethan, and they, they make you, you guys make me feel like family, and I'm, it's nice to now I have a new relationship with you guys, and uh, I just wanted to comment on what a wonderful uh, facility um, for drivers and just the way they let you learn and know about your truck, and I was very impressed, and I'm looking forward to doing business with you, uh, as John said, for my million-five truck, and I just wanted to get that out, out to you, boss. Well, we appreciate that, and we... Uh... We want we treat you the way we want you to treat us, and I've always felt if I go into a place of business and I don't like how they treat me, I just don't go back. And that's what I did, and now I I, I canceled Freightliner and I got farther with you guys on my regen. And John, I'm going to be the first truck that John puts that new uh, thing on for the uh, regen, and he's going to take my truck. And I told him I gave him permission; he could take my DD15 and and use it for any experiment he wants and monitor the motor from here on out. So we're going to, you're going to do the soot trap. Yes, sir. I'm coming down the first week in uh, uh, January. Um, we're going to, and John, uh, cause the old diesel doctor, I told him three years ago, I did it before I learned what they could do. And Ethan should remember me cause we were reaching and me and JR, uh, that night he'd come back from lunch or something. But uh, we're going to go ahead and put the two new pieces on, a simple little part that Freightliner can't figure out, and they keep bringing these trucks back in, and um, we're going to get that. We're going to do an engine flush. Uh, we're going to do some different things, going to put it on the dyno uh, and all that, and we're doing the crankshaft damper when I come back down. Good, good. And Ethan, yep, I, I, I just wanted to add <laughs> oh, yeah, and I didn't know. I remember John was very upset because he didn't have, I guess they call it the new drum barrel, Ethan. Is that, did I say that right? For the for Ooh, programming? Not... Remember, mine was a different. A oh, different, yeah, yeah. We, I, you, we've since got what we needed there. Yeah, you, you're in right, awesome. I've learned. I've learned there's actually, I think, three or four different DD15 ECM internal hardware. Um they all look the same. You can't tell from the outside. Uh, but, yeah, they actually have three or four. I think it's four different setups. And you had the, the oddball one that I've never seen before. Well, of course. But I, my oddball one, that my motor's still good. And I, and I take care of it. And like I said, Ethan, I'm looking forward to getting all this done. And I wanted to let you know, remember how I told you the only way it would reach end? That's why I think that diesel doctor turned off that part. But it, about five days after I left the shop, it all came on, but I was able to regen it, but it only took me six minutes this time. 
So, um, but like I said, are we gonna? Are you gonna have the crankshaft damper in stock when I come down? Yo, that damper is the one that has the belt that goes around the outside of it, and you're gonna have to let us know to get that because that is not a that's a non-stock item. So give right, us right. That's what that that's what John told me, and I just wanted to make sure to let you know even to, uh, to let you know I will be down. I'm set to come in for the fourth, fifth, and sixth to get all this done in January. All right. I'm going to make a note now to get that damper. Yep, we'll have it on the shelf yes, for sir. you. And like I said, we're going to do the, we're going to do everything. We're going to put the uh, ECM back to stock and John's and you guys are going to reprogram it. But I, I know you got a ton of people, but Bruce, I can't, I can't say enough about your corporation and how pleased I am and uh, looking forward to doing business for, for a long time with you. Oh, and by the way, Bruce, I've got my two credit cards with twenty grand on them, and I have ten thousand set aside in my company maintenance fund, and I don't touch it. See, that's the way to do it. You've got to have and, that 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 fund set aside. I found out several years ago on my own personal checking account. If I keep ten thousand dollars or more in there, it takes the pit out of the stomach. Because regardless of what happens in my private life, usually I can cover it, plus the credit cards. So I, I like having that ten thousand, and that, and I would have more than that if I was running a truck as an owner operator. Oh, and, and absolutely, it's, it's a great feeling that if something had came up like down here, shop. Well, this part costs no problem. Just put it on there, and I'll pay for it. But Kevin yep. knows me how well I keep my numbers, and Kevin, I told you. And I'll get off there. I told you how I got this new deal with this new contract. I have now booted my bottom line up to 85 cents after all costs. Yeah, Chad, real quick, before you go into this new deal, and I've looked at your P&L a bunch of times, but I don't remember your gross revenue per mile. I know it's, it like, isn't it in like the dollar twenty range? Or is it even well, lower? Well, remember, it was it, it was sitting at the dollar nine, but now with all miles, I'm getting a buck forty six a mile, and I'm running a thousand miles less, and I, my bottom line is going to be way high because I lose my per diem and I have no cost now, and I'm home every night. So, Bruce, just to let you know, um, we've been working with Tad for quite a while on his numbers and the business. You know, you hear guys all the time say rates are so bad, fuel's so high, I can't set aside any money. He was running, he was in a lease purchase, and I, I'm not a fan of those, and he knows that, but he had a he had a plan, he listened, he worked the plan, he did the hard work. He just talked about having $10,000 set aside, two credit cards at $20,000. His truck's getting excellent fuel economy. He was only making $1.09 a mile. That That's incredibly wow. low. The average load today is paying in the $1.50, $1.60 a mile range off the boards. You know, you have to have your own authority to get that. But $1.09. I mean, I would tell a lot of people, look, you are just going to struggle. This is going to be difficult if we can't get that revenue number up. But Tad was at that number for a couple of years and still managed to get the truck running really well, get good fuel economy, set money aside. Now that he's got all of his costs under control, he's moved into another operation because he was looking around and his revenue number is going to go way up. So he's going to work less and still profit more. He's going to be in that 80 some cent a mile profit range, which is just awesome. 
So there's somebody who managed to do all the right stuff on basically a dollar ten a mile, which almost seems impossible. That's incredible. What a great story. It is. It, it's a really great story. We've been uh, working on that story for a couple of years now, and it just gets better and better all the time. And he was able to come into your shop and buy all the stuff he wanted. Well, that's nice. That's nice when you when you don't have to keep calling your banker and figuring out where you're going to get the money to fix your truck. And I, I look at a truck. The truck is the most important thing in an owner operator's life. I mean, it has to come first. It's what makes possible for the children and the family to eat and have a roof over their head. It, the truck has to be maintained and taken care of. Absolutely. Let's uh, let's get to another call before the break. Let's go to Nevada. Gary, welcome to the program. Hi, guys. I have a D-Deck 3 in my 2000 Freightliner Classic. And which I pretty much pretty much put side skirts and everything on it, so it's not your typical classic. But uh, I've had you guys put a program in it, the 500 horse uh, program, which is 500 to the wheels. And I was wondering how much I would gain by putting the the polished uh, polished imported uh, uh, exhaust manifold and your guys' turbo. Okay. Uh, now, did somebody put this D-Deck 3 in this 2000? Yeah. I had, I've had i had the truck for uh, – I bought it five years ago, and I blew it up in 2014, and so it's a completely rebuilt uh, D-Deck 3. Okay. So and, you put a D-Deck 3 but, from but, a D- but But the program you put in was a D-Deck 4 ECM. Right. Okay, what you gain with the full tilt ported and ceramic coated manifold is a quarter mile to the gallon. You gain quicker turbo response, and you'll drop 125 degrees exhaust temperature. And then with the turbo, you gain a little more response and a little bit more boost, and then the exhaust temperature comes down even more. Okay. The, the horsepower gains are actually, we've done this experiment on the dyno even, um, it's worth, depending on the truck, they're all a little different, is 20 to 40 wheel horsepower if you have our program with the manifold and turbo. 40, 40 horsepower to the wheel. So yeah. let's tell you what that is, flywheel. 20 to 40. It, every truck's a little different we've done it with, but it's a noticeable difference. That's 47 flywheel horsepower by letting exhaust flow by the manifold and the turbo. So that's free horsepower. And when you gain free horsepower, you gain fuel mileage. Okay. There you go. Good. We're going to get to a break. We'll come right back and make sure we got all your questions answered, and we'll get to more calls and questions right after this. I'm Kevin Rutherford. Stick around.
Welcome back. I'm Kevin Rutherford. This is the Power Hour. I've got Bruce and Ethan from Pittsburgh Power with me. Bruce, let's talk about that for just a second. I want to help people understand why that is. Why just putting a manifold on there, a part that doesn't move, doesn't really do much, but but by porting and polishing that manifold and getting air to flow easier, I want to get people to understand why the exhaust is so important on a diesel engine. So if you imagine that piston trying to come up, and if there's a lot of pressure, we, we refer to it as back pressure. If you have a lot of back pressure because of the turbo being smaller, the manifold not being polished, the exhaust having all kinds of bends and lots of distance, there's pressure that is being exerted on that piston. So the engine has to actually work against that pressure. And if that air is flowing out of the exhaust so easily, you reduce that pressure, then the engine just has to work easier. It, it has less work to do to, and we get more power because we're converting more of the fuel to energy to the wheels rather than just fighting against that pressure. And of course we get better fuel economy because the engine just doesn't have to work as hard exactly correct kevin you've learned well you're doing well i'm impressed well, thank you've been you. a great student now, you've been a great student me, of the diesel engine I, I and i have learned a lot since i met you and i thought i knew a lot about diesel engines before i met you but my knowledge base has increased tremendously you spending time with you guys and i love that over the years I, i've heard this i've heard some people say that a diesel engine, any engine, I guess they'll say, needs a certain amount of back pressure to run properly. That's not correct in a diesel, is it? That is true. You always will have back pressure because of the turbocharger. So let's talk about that. On an engine like a 500 horsepower, the average is 30 pounds of boost. When you're flat out to the floor and you have 30 pounds of intake air, you'll have about 35 to 38 pounds of back pressure, okay? So that means we're not being very efficient at that point. So fortunately, you're not using 30 pounds of boost that often, but you do have some guys that do heavy haul and they're using 22 to 28 pounds of boost on the level. So they're out of their efficiency. They need actually need a larger displacement engine. So now the trick is to have the back pressure be as low as possible when we're on our cruise and we're going across the plains. And let's say we have eight or 10 pounds of turbo boost. We want to see the back pressure between four and six. We want it to be less than. And then when you're in your mid-range power, 18 to 20, a lot of times you're just about even back pressure with intake pressure. And that's why our straight-through quiet performance mufflers work so well because once the exhaust leaves the turbo, it's lost 300 degrees, and now it starts to slow down. And the more it slows down, the harder it is for the piston to push it out. And that's another reason why the, the, the best, like on a 379, when we put the muffler down beside the transmission – Normally on those mufflers, on, on like a 6NZ or a D-Deck 3 or 4, we see a quarter mile of the gallon. But when you put the muffler down beside the transmission, you gain a half because the muffler is running hotter. Yeah. Interesting. 
You know, the only engine that that I knew of that we actually wanted to create back pressure at times in, a, in different ways was a two cycle. I did a lot of motocross racing when it was all two cycle and designing an exhaust for a two cycle engine was a real art. Like there were guys who would hand make exhaust because the way you designed the expansion chamber on the exhaust would determine the back pressure and could really change the performance on a two cycle. But on a diesel, we just it want does. it to be as low as possible, right? That is correct. Two-stroke, normally aspirated engine is a whole different animal. And so we, we let that, uh, whenever we're changing exhaust on the snowmobiles, we always go with the people. And being we're riding at high altitude, we have to go with the people that do their testing at high altitude. But on a diesel engine that's turbocharged, completely different. Got it. All right. Let's get to some calls. Let's go to Texas. Steve, welcome to the program. Steve, are you with us? Yep. It's your turn. Go ahead. Yeah. Hey. Okay. Thanks. Hey, Bruce. uh, I was up there about 14 months ago. I got a DDAC 5. Uh, Y'all took uh, the VG turbo off. Uh, Basically, it's a pre-emission 14 liters, what it is now. Uh, and I don't run your area. I live in Texas, and that's pretty much all I run. But anyway, a little while after that, kept getting some check engine lights, and it was had another bad injector. Y'all replaced it one injector for me. I had all six replaced, and I replaced the injector harness also. And now it's I've got a code. I've got the scan gauge, and I don't. It's not throwing a check engine light, but it's running a little rough, and you can tell it's got like a little mist to it. And I don't know if it's something to do with injectors again. I would hope not, since they were all replaced. I didn't know if it could be something with the ECM, or I'm, I'm just kind of lost on which way to go. Um, if, if the code, it can be looked up online. Um, I actually just found the DDEC5 code manual online by typing it in to Google. Yes, um, yes. I, I would first find out what the code is telling you, because it's going to give you, I believe, an FMI and an SID number. What I'm on the scan gauge right now, and it's a the ID number is five and the FM is nine. Okay, so if you if you and go I, to Google there, and you, it'll bring up a whole DDEC five series sixty troubleshooting correct. guide, and they'll have a big list of codes, and it'll have across the top okay. those exact two numbers and just match them up, and it'll tell you on the if it's an injector issue, it's kind of vague. the The scan gauge is only going to be able to tell you that yes, you have injector one through six issue okay and then if you go by you know a friendly shop there and they can plug in they can tell you exactly what the ecm is telling you because ecm will tell them the exact number okay uh uh, but the injectors probably got maybe 60 or seventy thousand miles on them uh would it would it fail that quick or start trying to fail Hey, it's an, electronic com- it's an electronic component, and it's a mechanical component, and the clearance in the barrel and plunger is 40 millions. All you have to do is have oh. some extremely dry fuel, and you can score a barrel and plunger. That's why I keep telling people to use Lucas fuel conditioner in your diesel uh-huh. fuel, because we need the lubricity. I, I, I okay, mean, well, reliability injector oh, is yeah. bad out of the box. 
Um, we've done rebuilds where we put six brand new injectors in. You start it up, and one's not even working. And wow! And okay. re- rebuild injectors of not only just Detroit, but it's Cat and Cummins. Everyone has that issue. And even back in the days when I built the big cam injectors, you you would uh, start a rebuilt engine up, and sometimes one cylinder would stay cold. You'd pull that injector out, running back on the injector machine, and you check the leakages, the the uh, plunger to the cup and the plunger to the barrel, and everything checks out okay. You put it back in, it still misses. You put another injector in, and it goes away. So it's just wow. just the way things are so, sometimes. I got you. So chances are it's probably an injector again just because of this yeah. fuel we yeah. have nowadays and so on. I, I wouldn't I wouldn't say that. I I would uh can you get to T and E tire up in Kansas City? No, I don't even go that far. I, I got a, a shop here by the house. They uh they can plug up to it and tell me everything. They're real good about that and they also really like the work that y'all did on this engine uh they're they like you know how everything okay. is and I've, i mean it i love how it runs and pulls i it is i mean it will run but uh just seems like i've been having some injector issues here lately do you know where montague texas is oh yeah well we have uh repent incorporated josh pope is one of our tuners there and uh he can hook into it, and we can make changes right from here. So just give oh, wow. Josh a okay. call. I can give you as if you want to give us a call. I can give you his number. And okay, Seminole, Texas. Uh, we we have a tune tune shop in Seminole, Texas too. Okay, Montague and in Seminole. Okay, right. right. Yeah, I will uh, uh, later on today or tomorrow or something call and, and get them numbers from from y'all. Okay. Hey, I appreciate hey, Bruce, I'm glad we talked about that. We're coming up on a break, so this is a good time for me to ask. Can you have somebody in your office put together that list of your remote locations and get it over to me? Because I just had that question yesterday. I couldn't for somebody. Yeah, I'd love to be able, when somebody calls, I'd like to be able to say, here's where you can go. Do you have, do you have a fax number? What the hell's a fax? stick around we'll be right back I'm Kevin Rutherford All right, a quick heads up. We're heading into the fourth segment of the Power Hour. That means at the end, I'm going to say goodnight, goodbye, all that stuff I say. But uh, let me take a look at calls. Uh, Looks like we'll do a second hour, and there's going to be some room. So if you want to jump in with a question, any question at all for the second hour, go ahead and press 1 on your phone right now. And uh, if you do it quick enough, we'll be able to get to you. So. Go ahead and press one on your phone, and we'll start screening those for the next hour. Here we go.
Welcome back. I'm Kevin Rutherford. This is the Power Hour. I've got Bruce and Ethan with me, and we're going to get back to some phone calls. We're going to head off to Minnesota. Jack, welcome to the program. Yeah, hi, Kevin, Bruce. Uh, Hello there. My, my question is on uh, 1014, and uh, it's got, uh, what the hell is it, 2 million uh, 40,000 on it, and I had an oil sample done, and Kevin was telling me that I had a little bearing wear, and matter of fact, I'm on my way home now, I'm going to do a full service, and we're going to turn the pan to see, but I'm planning on rebuilding it, and I would like a ballpark figure, because I will, uh, I will bring it to you. All right, now with 2 million miles on it, that means we need to put cam bearings in it. We need to think about doing an out of the chassis and doing a line bore and squaring the block, resurfacing the block, and cutting the upper counter bores. That's usually the number where we, uh, you don't know if you're going to need to do this until you pull the heads off and you pull the main bearings out and you look at the wear in the main bearings. So. Okay. With yeah, that said, well, what I, yeah. you you could Go spend ahead. anywhere from eighteen to twenty-two thousand on up to thirty some thousand. It's hard well, to I, say uh, what it's going to cost to do this. Okay. Well, I kind of had a ballpark of twenty-five, so I'm uh, I'm on my way to budget it. Twenty-five okay. thousand. So, uh, Twenty-five thousand. Well, it'll do a very thorough in the chassis rebuild with balance rods, balance pistons, and we can even do the cam bearings. Assuming yeah, well, that no, the I wanna, blocks. Go ahead. No, I would like. I would like to take it right out because it's it's at one in frame at uh, one point two. Okay. So it's it's time to do what you uh, you suggest. Because uh, it's red top, ten fourteen in a two thousand international, and uh, it's just phenomenal. I mean, I've I've got good life out of it. Is it a twenty twenty five CPL? Oh, I, that I couldn't tell you, Bruce. Okay, because the twenty twenty five CPL. You guys had it in there. Uh, what's it? Two years ago, in February, put a full gear in it, uh, exhaust system. I dropped a push rod up in Ohio, and I had it towed down to you guys. And, well, there's, uh, go ahead. There's no, there's no bull gear in an N14. There is a cam gear and accessory drive gear. Oh, so it was accessory one. drive. Okay. Yeah, I'm no all mechanic. Right. I'm sorry. That's all right. I mean, everyone <laughs> hears us talking about bull gears, but that's D deck fours. Okay. Oh, Not okay. On the okay. Well, I didn't uh, know that I needed to replace it, but uh, I can't remember who who was working on it. It was one of your service managers that called me, and and he suggested being that many miles, and it was off. To replace it, so uh, 
you know, I I took your advice and, and did it. Now, like I say, it's running real good right now. I mean, it is using a little bit of oil, and I want to get it uh, pre-done because I'm going to redo the whole truck. Okay. So uh, for an out of the chassis, you need to budget more than 25000 okay? Well, no, that was just what I was I was thinking. Do you think it's going to be 30 or more? Well, then that's what, what I'll go for. Okay. Because right here's I'm, what happens. Think about ahead. this. Once once you yank the engine out, then you look at cab mounts, you look at fuel lines, you look at airlines, and you start looking at what should we replace here. And then there you have the radiator and the charger cooler. If it's the original radiator, you know it's going to be done. So you can drop another five grand really fast once an engine's out on the floor. And so you, you do these things because it's so much easier to gain access to when the engine is not there. And the transmission, has it ever been serviced? Did it have bearings and seals? And and uh, has it been rebuilt one time? When it was overhauled, it was, uh, it was rebuilt. But, I mean, there's okay. 700... You know, by then it will probably be eight hundred thousand on it. Yeah. So, not so is that the is that the time to take it back apart again and put a twenty five hundred to thirty five hundred dollar rebuild on it before it fails? And then once you have that out, uh, a drive shaft's supposed to be done every half a million miles, but nobody does it. So when the drive shaft's on the floor, you can put another twelve thirteen hundred into a drive shaft. So you can see where this can go really fast when you have those three components out on the floor. So, so the other way you look at You're going to take my firstborn? <laughs> now, the, the one way to look <laughs> at it is, is this a classic? Is this a Freightliner classic? No, it's uh, 2,9900 international. Oh, okay. And how old are you? I'm 60 years old. 60. Okay. So this is going to be the last truck? Uh, I don't want a new one. Okay. I so mean, we're, going to make, I, I, we're, we're going to make yeah, this ahead. truck be the last one. This is the one you're going to retire with and then turn into an RV toter or a toy hauler or whatever. So if you end up spending another thirty-five or 40000 it doesn't matter because the dress rehearsal is over. All right. We've gone around, uh, and I'm 67, so I look at everything now when I do something. Is this going to be the last time I do this in my life? And on this N14, that's what you have to think about. This will be the last time that you do this. Right. Well, that's that's what I'm looking at because uh, right now, it, it, I mean, I'm, I'm getting anywhere from 7.5 to 7.8. And that's by doing, uh, you know, the the fuel after every uh, fueling. Yeah. And the guy I'm leased to has got two or four uh, 2016 international or Freightliners uh, evolutions, and he's only getting eight two. So I right. don't, you know, I would put fifty grand into this before I would go with a hundred and sixty grand into one of them. So, and the way to think about it is it's a very simple, the N14 is a very simple engine. It's a proven engine, 
and it's always been known as the engine that'll run the longest. And there you are with two million plus on it. So. Okay. Okay. Well, it looks like I'm gonna have to maybe even put more in my maintenance fund. I mean, right now I'm yep. putting twenty twenty cents a mile, and I'm Good another one you. of them that. Well, I only make about ten a mile. Plus a fuel charge, but all my loads are light. You know, fifteen. I'm I'm heavy right now. I got twenty two thousand on. Wow. No, no. <laughs> and it's from northern Minnesota to uh, Huntsville, Alabama. There you, there you go. So anyway, I appreciate it, and I'm going to be shooting for uh, early summer, late spring, I'm hoping. All right. Oh. Sounds good. All right. Let's try to squeeze in one more call. Let's go to Missouri. John, welcome to the program. Hello. Bruce, I've got a 2011 Western Star with a DD-13, and I've heard you talk about dampeners and balancers. Uh, is it crankshaft dampener? I was wondering if that yes. would apply to, to my truck. Yes. It's a 2011 DD-13. Yes. I'm not as familiar with that engine. Ethan, does that have the uh, belt externally around the damper? I, I don't know off the top of my head. I'd have to look that one up. Okay. Um, how many miles are on it? 700,000. Ooh, definitely need them yep. for there. It's due for a new damper. Anything it's over a half a million is due. On a crankshaft, and, and that just keeps it balanced? What, what's the balance? No, it's, That's it, the crankshaft balancer. Right. Yeah, the balance, the balancer, the mercury filled balancer that I invented years ago does the balancing. What the torsional damper does is every time an injector fires and the piston is slammed down, it wants to twist the crankshaft. And so the damper has a big steel ring inside that moves. And every time the piston is bottomed out, so think about it. On average, you have 700 firings per mile. So 700 times that damper moves per mile. Your calculator wouldn't go out to show you how many times that works in a half a million miles. There wouldn't be enough numbers in the calculator. So think about it, 700 times a mile that it's taking the twisting out of the crank. And when the damper starts to fail, it'll either break the crank, break the camshaft, break the accessory drive, break the... Uh, brackets that hold the air conditioning compressor and the alternator. It will knock the springs right out of a clutch disc. It'll break the bolts that hold the flywheel to the clutch or the flywheel to the crank. Or the time, we will do it again next time. Be safe, be profitable, be fit and healthy. Always do the hard work and master the journey. I'm Kevin Rothenberg. All right, everybody, we... Uh, Ran that right into the end. Uh, thanks, Bruce and Ethan from Pittsburgh Power, and we'll do it again next week. We're going to go ahead and get started on a second hour here as well. So let me take a look at calls, see what we've got. Uh, looks like we're pretty well loaded with calls, so I'm going to go ahead and get started. If I see that we have some room, I'll uh, let you know. Here we go. 
your money, your taxes, your truck, and your road to success in the trucking industry. This is Trucking Business and Beyond, the show that puts the money where it belongs, back in your pocket. Welcome to my world. I'm your host, Kevin Rutherford. The website is Let'sTruck.com. The show is all about the business of trucking. We take your calls and answer your questions about trucks, money, fuel mileage, maintenance, tires, taxes, technology, health and fitness on the road, getting started as an owner-operator, finding freight, working with brokers, getting your authority, you name it, we'll talk about it. All you have to do is pick up the phone and give me a call. And uh, I think I'm just going to get right to the phone calls tonight. These hour shows go by so fast, I want to get to as many as I can. So let's get started in Minnesota. John, welcome to the program. Hi, Kevin. Um, auto socks. If you pick up two of them and you have a power divider, are you covered or do you need to actually buy the four of them? Um, if you have a power divider, you're going to be okay because you can lock in the power divider, which means that we will get equal power to both axles. Now, what happens okay. though, that, that. That, that it will work, you would still be better off with four. Let, let's talk, this is a good time to talk about how a differential works and how a power divider works because people have a lot of misconceptions about this. So. When we have a six by four and we have two drive axles, that means we have two differentials, one on each axle, and a power divider, which is really just another differential. That's all a power divider really is. It works just like the differential does. So let's talk about the differential, which is in each axle. That differential is designed to actually slip so that when the truck is going around a corner, when you're turning a corner in a vehicle, think about this, the inside tire is going to turn less times than the outside tire. So if those two were, if that was a solid axle, it would be really, really hard to get around a corner. In fact, if you've ever driven a vehicle right. that has a locking differential, you can feel, I just experienced this the other night. We had a big snowstorm here in Oregon and I live on the top of a big hill and I have a vehicle, an FJ Cruiser that has a locking rear differential. And it's excellent when you wanna get unstuck. And it's great when you're going in a straight line. But when you try to make a turn, it will actually keep trying to push the vehicle straight. So that, that's why the differential slips like that to allow a vehicle to go around a corner smoothly. But that design also sends power to the wheel with the least amount of traction. It's the opposite of what we would expect. So if you get stuck, the wheel that's sitting on solid ice is the one that's gonna spin. If the other wheel on that axle happens to be in gravel where you would actually get traction, it won't turn. So the, the differential almost works against us when we need a lot of traction. That's why if you have a locking differential, 
you can lock those two wheels together and they will both turn with the same amount of power. That's a differential. The power divider does the exact same thing between the two axles. So when you lock in the power divider and you've now locked those two axles together, the power divider is sending equal amounts of power to both axles at the same time. If it's not locked in, it will send more power to the differential that has the least amount of traction. So again, if you don't have the power divider locked in and you're stuck, you're going to see the wheel spinning and it's gonna be the wheel that has the least amount of traction. So when you lock it in, then you have more opportunity to get out. So imagine now you put auto stocks on one of your axles and lock in the power divider, that axle is going to get power now. So there's a pretty good chance it's going to yeah. get you out. Where you run into some problems I, I, is, is depending on the terrain, that axle with the auto sock might end up off the ground or it might end up slightly elevated and then it's not going to do you much good. So you're still better off with four of them. Two will work if you lock in the different or the power divider, but four would be better. Yeah, I'm just North Dakota, South Dakota, Minnesota, not very many hills and I just think it'd be nice to get off the road type of a deal. So that answers yeah, that I, question. I, um, go, ahead. go ahead. I was just saying, I've heard you a couple of times say yellow top batteries. I think you want to be talking about the blue deep cell batteries with the Maxwell engine starter. They are. I, I used I used to okay. say that, and, and Matt did a bunch of research, and he dug down into the specs. I'm not sure why they show those batteries as two different items, um, but Matt did a bunch of research on it for me and came back and said, nope, the yellow tops are excellent. All right. That uh, just caught me off guard, so thank you very much for that information. I, I did the same thing. When I looked at it, I thought it was the blue we wanted, and Matt did some research, and I forget exactly what he came up with. Um, maybe he'll send me a message if he's listening. But uh, he said the yellow is actually what we're looking for. Let's go to Oklahoma. John, welcome to the program. Yeah, hey, Kevin. How are you doing today? Good. What's hey, on your uh, mind? I, well, I've, I've spoken with you and uh, John and, and Bruce before about uh, my truck. It's a uh, 05 uh, Freightliner. I've got a D-Dag 5 in it. And uh, I just had my transmission replaced from a Lightning 10. Now it's got a straight 10 with a overdrive. But it's got 336 rears. And uh, John was looking to see if they could replace the uh, or change the the, uh, the gears in the transmission, make it a 13 speed. But he said that's not going to be possible. So I'm wondering what kind of a rear end differential could I change out from that 336? Got it. Good question. So, and and if we were able to have the 13 speed, say this was a convertible transmission and we could make it a 13 speed, then the 336s would work. They're not my favorites, 
But with the 13 speed, we can make them pretty work pretty well. With the 10 speed, I think they absolutely suck. I think this is a lousy combination yes, of 10 speed and sixes. And I think you're feeling that too. So you could go to say a 370, although I think if we're going to the expense of changing the differentials, I would actually go to a 279 or a 264. That one's always a toss up. We got to play around with which one. But that way you're going to run in ninth direct and and be the most efficient and then you're still going to have 10th for those times when you're really light or you're out on the level and you're going to go a little faster so i think if i'm going to spend the money i would go to the 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 higher gear ratio the 264 279 um how fast do you like to drive most of the time uh most of the time i'm somewhere between 61 and 63 so, uh, oh, you're, you know, you're right with, Land, with Landstar, sometimes I get those, yeah, with Landstar, I get sometimes get those loads that are, I got to be there yesterday, you know, and so I run up about 65, 66, but I almost never go faster than 67, you know, except downhill. <laughs> right. Um, how about, are there times when you've got a lot of weight and you've got to pull it out of a hole? Does that happen very often? Not very often, because I, I prefer to uh, I hunt for those loads less than 30,000. Then then in that case, being that you are running, that, you're right there on the borderline. So I'm looking for that one factor that's going to help me decide. But based on the fact that you're looking for lighter loads most of the time, I would go with the 264. Okay. Okay, uh, I got one question about tax. Sure. Uh, you you was, you've been speaking about the taxes. Uh, I'm looking at uh, right now through end of November at about 121,000 gross, and uh, not counting my uh, uh, per diem, I got about 80 82,000 expenses. I had a lot of maintenance this year, new transmission. It's just a lot, yeah. of, a lot of maintenance. <laughs> Okay, so hold that thought. We'll come back. We'll talk about that right after this. Stick around. We'll be right back with more stuff. I'm Kevin Rothenberg. Welcome back. I'm Kevin Rutherford. I was talking with John in Oklahoma. So we are going to head back there. 
And uh, John, go ahead. Anything else you wanted to add to that? Well, uh, uh, I was looking at uh, what you've been saying about maybe uh, going ahead and get signed up for the uh, CMC and maybe pre-purchasing some uh, trailer tires. You know, so let uh, but I wasn't great. sure. And I'm, I'm glad you're doing this, and I'm glad you have the numbers, because this is what I've been talking about. Get your numbers together so we can make some decisions. You were at 120-something gross, 80-something in um, expenses before per diem. That puts us down to 40 already. Per diem is going to take you under 30. That's a really low net year for a typical owner-operator. And those kind of years happen. Maintenance, fuel's down, so rates aren't as good. There's lots of reasons. But the good news is you've done the work, and now we can make a good decision. I'm going to tell you the opposite of what I've been saying. You don't want to spend any more money this year. You want to put off everything you can till next year. Your taxes are already going to be low. We're not going to have many years where you make um, less than this. So we don't want to pile on more deductions. Anything that you can hold off on now until January, you'd be better off. So I'd love to have you sign up for the CMC, but don't do it till January 1st because you don't want the write-off in this okay. year. You want it. Now. Okay. That was what, that was what I needed to know. I appreciate it. You're welcome. And, and, Congratulations on doing the work, having the numbers, and asking good questions. Those are the kind of things that separate successful business people from people who struggle all the time. Let's go to Nevada. Gary, welcome to the program. Hey, Kevin. Say, uh, I was, I, I'm on profit gauges. Um, I'm not up to date, but I will be within the next week, but I do have a question for you on the last company I ran for, the last two companies I ran for. They gave me, you know, my settlement and my, when they, when I got my 1099, it was what I got paid for the, the gross. And then, uh, then I subtracted fuel and all that. Well, now I'm running for a refrigeration company and now they, give me, they're giving me a 1099 for the check that they're giving me. So you gotta be kidding. But, it, so, but I, I have what? all the numbers, the numbers come out the same, but I'm wondering why, you know, should this be, this makes it look like I am an employee. I, I still have all my other deductions as far as, you know, maintenance and all that. That's all I pay out separate, but it's just the fuel that pay for the reefer fuel. And I pay for what goes in my truck, but they're giving me going to be giving me a 10.99 for what? Yeah, I, my check I, is. I, I, I know what they're doing, and my advice to them would be fire your CFO because they're just totally screwing it's a, up. It's his I mean, wife. It's, it's his wow. wife. <laughs> <laughs> this is completely wrong. You, you don't randomly pull out expenses and, and show a net revenue to somebody who is a business or an independent contractor. You issue a 1099 for pure gross revenue, no other number. This is going to screw so many people up. I will tell you, I guarantee you, I could, I don't know how many contractors they have. 
the more they have, the more they're going to screw up. I've seen this happen. In fact, I had a case where I had a husband and wife team ran a great business. They really did. They, they were really trying hard, but they came to me and they said, you know, we think we're doing pretty well. The bills are paid. We've got money set aside. We're, you know, we're, we're doing better than we ever have, but we haven't paid taxes in the last four years. And, you know, our accountant says everything's fine. And I said, send me the tax return. Let me look at it real quick. So they sent the tax returns over. It took me 30 seconds to figure it out. Now, it'll take the typical IRS auditor a little longer than that, but they'll figure it out. If, if In an audit, they would catch this. I caught it in 30 seconds. They were doing the exact same thing you just described. Their carrier was issuing a 1099 after the expenses that were taken out of the settlement. So it was things like fuel, um, insurance. There were some other things that were in there that were the, the owner operator was paying for, but they were deducted out of the settlement. So now what happens is the, the tax preparer who specializes in the trucking industry, I, I, I felt like blasting this guy for not catching it as well. And he's pretty well known in the trucking industry. He took that 1099 which was kind of a net, not really a net, but it certainly wasn't a gross. And he still deducted all of those expenses again because that's the way you would do it. But he had to realize yep. that the 1099 was wrong. He had to realize that on $100,000 worth of revenue, you can't have $50,000 worth of fuel. That just doesn't make any sense. But he did this for four years straight. They never paid any tax. And I went back and redid their tax returns correctly. And they were going to owe well over $20,000 worth of tax plus penalties and yep, interest. But I felt horrible yeah, but, that I was the one that gave them the news. Yeah, but me knowing what the, what the numbers are, won't that just work out in my... Oh. I mean, because the numbers come out the same. I'm going to tell you how you should do it. Since you know it, you caught it. That's a good thing. They didn't. Their tax preparer didn't catch it. For you, here's what I would do. Ignore their 1099. Act like you didn't get it. And just put in your gross revenue and then list all your expenses. That is the correct way to do it. You are right. You could put in the 1099 amount and then only show the expenses you know you should show. Like you said, you've done it both ways. The numbers should be exactly the same, but the correct way is to start with the total gross revenue and then deduct all the expenses on the tax return. Okay. All right. I can do that. I've seen that before. It is a disaster. That is absolutely the wrong way to do it, and it gets a lot of people in trouble, but I'm glad you caught it and you understand so you can do yours right. Let's go to Ohio. Axe, welcome to the program. How are you doing, Kevin? We talked Good. A What's on your mind? Ago, um, I've been on the ketogenic. Yeah, I've been on the ketogenic paleo diet. I'm currently at 64 pounds that I've lost. Um, I had an eye scan a year ago. I was uh, totally blind. I had two vitreous bleeds, one in each eye. 
I had seven surgeries. I got my eyesight back, 2040 in one eye, 2020 in the other. I had an eye scan done with some kind of new new scanner, and they say they don't see any more new damage. But I'm wondering what I can do with my diet to help my eyes at this point. They, I asked them that question, and they have no idea. That's because doctors are not nutritionally trained. I, I know that shocks people. Well, they don't I know, and they don't even believe I've lost the weight. From I told them what I'm doing, and first of all, they told me I'm going to die of a heart attack, and I just laughed at them. <laughs> and you know, they just have no clue. <laughs> right? Yeah, they. It, it is. It is mind-boggling to think that our doctors believe that nutrition has very little to do with health, when it is the exact opposite. Everything about health is affected by nutrition. Here's the good news. You've been on this diet. It's working well for you. We can tell by the weight loss. Sounds like you feel good and it's working and there's no new damage. The one thing that causes tremendous amounts of eye damage is high blood glucose. So the standard American diet is just not good for your eyes. It's not good for most parts of our body. So the fact that you've gotten away from that and gotten to a, a ketogenic diet, which is very low in sugar, which will keep your blood sugar very stable and low, is the first step. You, you, that, that is going to fix 80% of the problems you were having before. The next thing you can do is, is and you mentioned keto slash paleo, which is exactly what you should be doing which is just now that you're keto, very low sugar, paleo meaning you're eating cleaner, just do more of that. I mean, what you do now is you look for the most nutrient-dense foods you can find. I'll give you an example. When I cook now, I, I am cooking more what I call functional food. So whereas before, and I've always loved to cook, whereas before my number one priority when I was cooking a dish was taste. I wanted it to taste the best it could possibly taste. I still use that criteria, but I have a different criteria now that I look at first. Then I still want it to taste good, but I start with a whole different criteria. And I'm going to tell you what that is and uh, what that looks like in the real world right after this break. Stick around. We'll be right back. I'm Kevin Rutherford. Welcome back. I'm Kevin Rutherford. The website is letstruck.com. I'm going to go back to Ohio. So, Axe, I think you're on the right track. We just want to do more of what you're already doing. And the longer we do it, the better off you're going to be. But when I talk about kind of functional food, I'll give you an idea. I, I have a, uh, I love chili in the wintertime. 
I've been making chili for a couple decades. So I have a pretty, I don't use a lot of recipes, um, but I have a pretty standard way that I made chili. And the other day I looked at it and thought, okay, if I'm going to eat chili, why don't I try to make it a lot more nutritious? And I'm not going to start all over. I'm going to start with the recipe I already have. But what if I, instead of adding a pound of ground beef, what if I had a half a pound of ground beef and a half a pound of ground liver? You know, can I get away with that? Will it totally ruin the dish? Um, and if, if it did, I would try different amounts. So I was able to put in a half a pound of liver and there was a slight change in the taste. I actually like it better. And now I've quadrupled the nutrient density of that dish. Then I looked at it and said, hmm, what if I added pumpkin? Something really kind of odd. But I, I used organic, uh, you know, an organic pumpkin puree. And I was able to put in like a pint of organic pumpkin puree, and it actually improved the taste. It mellowed it out a little bit, gave wow. it this little bit of background sweetness, and then I added more heat because I like sweet and hot. So I ended up with a better chili. It actually tastes better. I love it. It's got this thick, rich, um, the pumpkin gives it some, some richness and thickens it up a little bit, and the nutrition levels are off the chart. It's the same chili, but the nutrition levels are off the chart. And, you know, even if you can taste it a little bit, it's still really good. I mean, people who are really sensitive to the liver can taste it. But what I find is the more they eat it, the more they like it. So that's all I would say to you. I think you're doing 95% of all the right stuff already. Just start looking for ways to add more nutrient density to your diet. And that, that's what your eyes want. They just want more nutrients. And my blood pressure was 190 over 110. Right now I'm at 130 over 89. I mean, everything is getting so much better. I, I'm just so happy I came across you and you really changed my life for the better. Well, excellent. It sounds like you're doing all the hard work and it's paying off. So, you, like I say, you're 95% of the way there. Now we just just think every time we eat, what could we do to add more nutrient density to this meal? A lot of times I'll take um, and just throw in a handful of mixed greens of some kind. Toss them in some olive oil and apple cider vinegar and just throw it on the plate as a little salad with, with almost any meal. So just, just think about that. Now that we're eating better, we're thinking about what we're eating, we know how important nutrition is, think about adding some more nutrients every time you eat. Let's go to New Hampshire. Matt, welcome to the program. Hi, Kevin. Thanks for taking my call. Hey, I get a, a quick question uh, about blood sugar. I, uh, I've been tracking my blood sugar the last couple of weeks, thanks to your show, wanted to try it, but they're all over the place, these numbers. And I was wondering if you can kind of give me a handle on what might be going on. Um, I never had, yeah, a, they, never thought I had a. Yeah, go ahead. When you say they're all over the place, give me your lowest and your highest. Okay, uh, my lowest was ninety six. My highest was one thirty five. And that's fast. Okay, so, oh, those are those are all fasting numbers. Yes. Are you testing it 
after a meal? I am, yes. So give me the highest you've recorded after a meal. Uh, 134 was the highest. Oh, that it, oh, so, so that's the highest you've achieved on any test, whether it was fasting yeah. or after. No, uh, okay. No, the, uh, the 135 was the highest, uh, fasting. I didn't do a meal that day. I didn't test okay, it after a meal that day, but I did every day since. So two things I'm seeing here. One, your fasting is a little elevated, but your range is nice and tight. I, I'm going to make an assumption. I'm going to make an assumption that you're eating a very low carbohydrate diet. I am. Okay. And how long have you been doing that? Uh, just the last, uh, just the last few weeks, uh, maybe a week or two before I started testing blood. Got it. So all of your blood testing has been on that low carbohydrate diet, which is excellent. So, your fasting numbers are running a little high, which what that tells us is if you weren't seeing any symptoms of, you know, maybe pre-diabetes or you were about to, you were at that point where you were becoming insulin resistant. And yeah, now that you're eating that, yeah. carb, okay. And I figured you were. Um, now that you're eating low carb, it doesn't really matter. Because we don't see any damage at all from blood sugar until your levels stay above 140 for extended periods of time. And you haven't even oh, hit 140. Okay. Yeah, you haven't right. even hit 140 yeah. once. Yeah. So, and, and that's the thing. And that's why type 2 diabetes is completely curable. Even though the medical community has told us for decades that it isn't, it is. You, you just cured it. You, you no longer have elevated blood sugar because you're not putting the sugar in your body in the first place. It, it's very, yeah, very, I yeah. won't say impossible, right. but it's very difficult to have high blood sugar if you just don't eat it. Now, what's going to happen? You're running slightly high on your fasting blood sugar numbers, but I, I, I don't worry about that because you're not in the danger zone. Even if you stayed like this, we'd be okay. What it tells us, okay. though, when you have high fasting blood sugar, what it tells us is if you were to continue eating a high-carb diet, you would develop diabetes. No question about it. You would start seeing numbers yeah. up in the 200 range because your body is insulin resistant. But that's okay because if you don't put sugar in, it's never going to matter. And what's going to happen over time is that that insulin resistance is going to go away. The longer you do this, the lower your fasting numbers are going to become and the better your response is going to get when you do eat sugar or carbohydrates. And you may want to increase those at some point or not, just depends. But what you're doing is working. Okay, could I uh, real quick uh, follow up here? Uh, would I be a good candidate for any of those sugar protocols? Absolutely, everybody is. Okay. Now, you know, okay. whether and, or not um, somebody uh, who has pretty healthy blood sugar needs to do it or not, eh, it's up to them. Um, there's a ton of good nutrients in those protocols, 
and lowering blood sugar would probably help everybody in the country right now. And certainly for you, we know you have some insulin resistance. Those protocols will bring those numbers down even better. Yeah, I was experiencing a lot of shakes and sweating with some hunger. And but after I started on the keto over uh, the first few days, that all those shakes went away, which is nice. Excellent. But one quick one, and, and I'll hang up uh, and take it off the air if you want. Is uh, <clears throat> a few of these days, several days, I noticed what causes a higher fasting, and then after you eat, the blood sugar number drops. I'm sorry. Say that again. Yeah, I, I noticed that several uh, of the days, several of the days I've been tracking, my blood sugar in the morning fasting was higher um, than after I tracked it after I ate. So what's happening there, and that's actually a good thing. What happens overnight, um, this is referred to as the dawn effect, and people on strict ketogenic diets seem to have this happen more than others. I had this happen to me. Your, your blood sugar stays relatively stable and low all day long because you're not eating the sugar, which is a great thing. At night, while you're fasting, now there's no food, and your your blood glucose levels drop low enough that it would wake you up. And for a lot of people, it does wake them up. That's one of the symptoms we look for with somebody who has blood sugar issues is if they always wake up at two or three in the morning and have feel anxious or have a hard time getting back to sleep. A lot of times it's, that's just low blood sugar. What tends to happen when you go very low carb is your body seems to handle that better and it starts producing its own glucose. And it can do that from protein, that's called gluconeogenesis. Um, it can also do it from fat, and it's still called gluconeogenesis, just harder to do it with fat. It will tend to do it with protein. And that actually raises your blood sugar, even though you're not eating anything. Your body's producing it to keep your blood sugar elevated so you don't wake up, and it's a good thing then when you wake up, that's why you see some of those elevated numbers. Then you eat and it actually comes down. Very, very common though, and it's really a good sign. So, sounds like this is working well for you already. I would encourage you to get on one of those blood sugar protocols and you're gonna feel even better. Stick around, we'll be right back. I'm Kevin Ruff. Welcome back. I'm Kevin Rutherford. We're down to the final segment. I'm going to get right back to the phone calls. We are off to, where are we going this time? We're going to Pennsylvania. Daniel, welcome to the program. Hey, Kevin, how are you doing? Good. What can I help you with today? Hello? 
Yeah, I got uh, just two quick questions. Um, I was on the website today. Is the um, health care thing that you guys put up, is that still up on there? I didn't see it uh, so that you qualify for the new year it is, under the Obamacare Act. It, it isn't right now, okay. and it's my my number one priority when I get off the air today. We, we had a deal worked out with that company, and we actually overwhelmed them with submissions. We had over 700, and they asked us okay. if we would take it down, and I've got to call them and figure out how we can handle this because people are signing up. They're loving it, but this is the open enrollment period, and they're kind of overwhelmed right now, so I've got to get back with them and figure out how we can bring this to our listeners without, you know, totally overwhelming them. So look for it to be back up within the next couple of days, I hope. Okay, cool. And the next question is, uh, I converted over from a company driver to an owner operator back at the end of October. So my question was to be prepared as far as tax season and everything. Would you recommend that I sign up for the tax program or just wait till January 1st and start fresh? So no, I, would do, you know, I, I, have that I would do it right now. I, I would do it right now because that first year is critical. Um, it's only going to take you a day or two to get all of your numbers put in. And you could even just use the 30-day free trial. So you don't even have to spend any money. Just start the trial, go back, put all your numbers in. It's only going to take you a day. And then we're going to know. Maybe you made a ton of money. Maybe we do need to accelerate some deductions. Or it's just better to know before the year's over with. So I would sign up now and get all your numbers in as quick as you can because there's still time to make some decisions. I'll, I'll get right on that, Ted. Thank you. You're welcome. Thanks for the call. And congratulations on doing it right. I know guys who have been struggling as owner operators for 10 years. They're going to struggle the next 10 years because they won't get a good bookkeeping system in place. You just got started. You're already doing it. That's excellent. Congratulations. Let's go to. Let me look through the calls here. See if I don't want to miss anybody. We're going to go to Oklahoma. JR, welcome to the program. Hey, Kevin, how you doing this brisk, beautiful December afternoon? Just wonderful. What's on your mind today? Okay, I've talked to you a few times, but I've been on this, uh, I've been Keto Paleo for about a year and a half, almost two years now. And uh, home in Phoenix, Arizona last week, started to get a little bit of uh, sniffles in the head. Uh, went into uh, eh, pretty much a minor uh, chest cold, I guess I would say, some drainage. And uh, finally, I broke down about three days ago and started tapping my NyQuil. And that seemed to have helped a little bit, but I got to thinking, wait a minute. I'm not sure what's in NyQuil. Is this good for me or bad for me? Or being keto paleo for a couple of years going to allow me to treat myself for a couple of weeks and then get back into being normal? Or is there something natural that I could be taking to, to work through this stuff? Like I said, I haven't been half as sick uh, as I used to be. I've been pretty healthy, but this is my first real bout with feeling a little bit under the weather, and I just haven't thought about it, you know? But this is a good question. We haven't talked about this, so I'm glad you asked. Here's the thing about virtually every over-the-counter medication and prescription medication. 
they they treat symptoms. And what you find if you really dig in is if you just if, if you treat symptoms, I won't even say if you just if you treat symptoms, many times you're going to extend the duration. Let me explain why. All of the symptoms that we feel, let's talk about having a cold. All of the symptoms we feel is actually the body fighting the virus. So the reason we cough is because the body will concentrate the virus into the mucus and then try to cough it out. That's the body trying to get rid of the problem. If you take a cough suppressant, well, guess what happens? You stop coughing so you feel better, but you've just eliminated one of the ways the body is getting rid of the problem. When you get a fever, your body is cranking up the heat to kill the virus, but it makes us uncomfortable. So we take something to knock the fever down and we feel better, but we've just eliminated another way the body's going to get rid of the problem. When you look at every, virtually every prescription drug and every over-the-counter medication, they are only dealing with symptoms and many times they're blocking the body's effort to get rid of what the original problem was. So... Yeah, you could take NyQuil and you're going to feel better, but there's a good chance it's actually going to last longer. So the better way, if you can, and sometimes I know we have, there are some natural things that help depending on what the symptoms are. So you can take, let's say you figure out what your worst symptom is, a cough, and you look up natural remedies for cough. I'll tell you what one of them is, a cup of tea with lemon and honey does amazing at at suppressing cough and making your throat feel better. And it actually supports your immune system. It actually helps your body heal itself rather than blocking your body from healing. Now, does tea with honey and lemon work nearly as good as NyQuil? Not even close. That's why we've become so dependent on drugs, whether they're over-the-counter or prescription, because they work really well at alleviating the symptoms quickly. And most of the natural remedies don't. They work, they don't, they're not as powerful, they don't work as fast, they're not as completely effective, but I think it's a much healthier way to go. And you can take any of your symptoms and go Google, you know, natural remedy for this symptom and you'll come up with all kinds of ideas. You just try them and see what works for you. Well, yeah, I tried, um, I was kind of, I felt so good that that first few days, I, you know, I felt so good that I thought, okay, I'm under the weather, but I'm just thinking, okay, it got into where the drainage was, you know, starting to wake me up at night a little bit. And I thought, okay, I, I really, I haven't really thought about it. So I just popped some NyQuil to alleviate those symptoms right then and give you a call and find out what's better for it. But usually I would have been on NyQuil all week long, you know, in the old days, but I feel so much better now that, yeah, it's just one of those things, and I kind of agree with you. Let it work its course, but when you're out here in 20-degree weather and you're miserable, NyQuil sometimes is a good thing. <laughs> well, it, it, and I would say that, you know, you're, you're doing it the right way. You're paying attention. You're saying, look, I do feel better. I don't need to pop that drug right now. But then you get to that one day where, you know, it's going to be a long day. You're kind of dragging. The weather sucks. Yeah, you know what? Taking something like that once in a while isn't going to kill anybody. 
Okay, well, great, brother. Well, thank you much for the info. You're doing a great job, and hopefully we'll see you at the CMC next year. i got to wait till after the first of the year to get registered because of taxes, but you know the route. Yep, excellent. We look forward to seeing you. Good stuff. Let's go to Arizona. Rusty, welcome to the program. Hey, Kevin, thanks for taking my call. I'm looking here at some taxes, and uh, because of the profits this year, we're looking for uh, as much tax credits as possible. I just want to know if you know of any uh, federal dollar-for-dollar tax credits. Uh, nothing that you can, like, just randomly decide to do. Um, there are some dollar-for-dollar dollar credits, but they tend to fall more to the much, much lower income group. So there, there are almost no dollar-for-dollar dollar tax credits um, for even kind of middle-class, forty, fifty, sixty thousand $60,000 range. There are hardly any, um, and most of those are what I'm trying to get to is none of them are simple. There isn't something I can say, oh, just go spend this or go buy this and you get a dollar for dollar tax credit. They're almost always some long drawn out complication. Like you have six kids and three of them go to school and you know, you're, you know, you, you bought an electric vehicle or, I mean, they're all kind of out there. There, there, there isn't anything easy you can go do and get a dollar for dollar tax credit. Okay. Are there any other tax credits available for uh, doing a compressed natural gas conversion to a semi? Did you know? Even if there were, I would never recommend it. Because? Because the whole, because the whole point of a tax credit would be to save money, net. The cost of the conversion, the cost of natural gas, the cost of maintenance, maintenance doubles doubles on a diesel engine when you convert it to natural gas. The fuel is not cheap anymore compared to diesel, and the conversion is expensive. So even if we got some sort of a credit, it's still not worth it. And no, I don't know of any, by the way. But I don't look, because I would never convert to natural gas, no matter how much of a tax credit they gave me. Thanks for joining me. I've got to get out of here. We'll see you next time. Be safe, be profitable, be fit and healthy. Always do the hard work and master the journey. Kevin Rutherford. Thanks for tuning in to The Audio Road. If you have any questions, give us a call at 855-800-FUEL. That's 855-800-3835. Check out the website at letstruck.com and find us on facebook.com slash letstruck.